Welcome to the Exit Podcast. This is Dr. Bennett. I'm joined here by Citizen Hush. Citizen Hush is a rock star on Goon Twitter, creeping up on 100,000 followers. He's also a successful entrepreneur, and his interest in being his own boss and charting his own course has led him to a lot of the same interests we have here at Exit, namely freedom of speech and association, self-reliance, building parallel institutions. Citizen Hush, welcome to Exit. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. So my, my first question that I ask uh, everybody that we have on the show is if you could build your ideal detached life for yourself, where you are, you are out of these institutions, you've made your exit. What does that look like to you? Huh? That's a big question. Um, I think the more interesting question is why am I trying to get away from those institutions? Um, I think yeah, fundamentally, there. I, I, I think fundamentally um, a lot of these institutions that we've come to accept is uh, part of our n- everyday existence uh, are artificial and fragile. Um, they're inorganic systems that have no precedence in nature. Like you have things like, like, like debt, like debt is a really good example. So debt, Debt is, isn't inherently good or bad. Uh, it's a tool. It can be used irresponsibly or it could be used responsibly. And we, we have, through the monopoly of the use of force that the government has, um, we've, scaled, we've been able to scale what we can do with debt to unsustainable levels. That's just like one example. Um, as far as like other institutions that um, I'd like to get away from, like uh, r- largely just the institution of the state. Like, uh, yeah. I, 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 I per- personally, I, I don't, I'm not a very political person, though a lot of the things I do and say are inherently political because of the times we live in. But I think the, the idea of the state is this primitive and barbaric throwback to like early days of like hunter-gatherer societies that I don't, it's archaic and um, I, I'm not a fan of it. And I think that's kind of the big answer to a big question. Like, I think, how do you escape the state uh, and its overarching yeah. reach? And I think there are many, there are many different ways to do it. Um, and that that's kind of like the distinction. Like a lot of my views are very similar to like libertarians. A lot of my views are very similar to like anarchists. I probably, as a shorthand with people, I'll say I'm a libertarian just because I don't feel like explaining my beliefs. But like, I, 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 my problem with libertarians is they just tweet about things and they just (laughs) argue with people on, they just argue on the internet. And I'm more interested in people who are doing things, if that makes sense. No, that does make sense. And I, that, that, that leads into, I think a lot of guys who, would like to create uh, content have concerns that they won't have the credibility to speak on whatever issue they want to speak on. And talking about doers, you've chosen this gun niche where there's tons of guys running their mouths and getting clowned on for it. And you are not a veteran yourself, but you've built this incredible respect and following among guys who are veterans and know their stuff and don't suffer fools. And I'd like to know, how you built that credibility and following with those guys? Uh, it, 
I don't, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how true that is, but I appreciate you saying, <laughs> um, I, I, I'd say like, it, 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 it kind of just goes down to like how you interact with worlds, the world and different communities. So like, uh, di- did you play sports growing up or anything? Not much. Okay. Well, um, so like I, I fought a lot growing up and like the, the first thing you do when you go to a new gym or a new, uh, place to learn how to fight is you don't come in walking at acting like you're Billy Badass. You you have to pay your dues. Sure. You have to you you got to mop the floor because you're the new guy. Uh sorry, yeah. it's just how it works. Um and with that comes a certain level of humility and like that's kind of like I the the gun thing on YouTube and Twitter is just kind of a hobby for me. Um, I and I don't take myself seriously, or I try not to, rather. And yeah. I think that probably that maybe that lends itself to what you're saying, where people are less hard on me than other folks. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I've talked to some of the former military folks about it too. And like for me, like it's it's about having fun and not and I try not to take myself too serious on camera on twitter like i'm i'm an equal opportunist uh, oper- equal opportunity firearms enthusiast there's only one gun i don't like and it's the ruger lcp every other gun i'm cool like <laughs> um it's it, for me it's just like uh we we tend to segment ourselves into these camps of like glock versus mnp or whatever whatever brand tribalism i hate brand tribalism and any any manifestation of it and for me it's just about like hey these are really interesting machines they're fun to play with and they're also (laughs) useful there's a utility factor to it and um and there's a political component as well but that's that's really just all it is just me messing around with guns and having fun with them and trying not to take myself too seriously. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, if you, if you were, um, you know, all alone and it's red dawn, what's, what's your loadout? Uh, I don't know. I probably, probably, probably just that AR 15. Um, any of the ones I have laying over next to me, <laughs> uh, a, a pistol and an HEB bag. I'll hold all my shit. Oh, sorry. Am I allowed to cuss? <laughs> am, I, am I allowed to cuss? Okay, cool. Good, um, yeah, I mean, like for me, like it's uh, whatever, whatever you're most comfortable with is probably what you're safest and best with. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I own a lot of guns and try to be at least somewhat uh, uh, fluent in using them. Um, not, not because I necessarily think I'll need to use it or any capacity, but it's just kind of like, I, I see it as like a new challenge. Like, okay, yeah. I, I suck with AKs and I still suck with AKs. So I'm going to pick a bunch up and I'm going to find out how to run one of these and make it work for me. Right on. So what is the most exotic gun that you've shot? Oh, that's a good question. Oh, a uh, forty-five seventy Gatling gun. That was fun. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> yeah, that was expensive to shoot. I only, I only put, uh, I, I, I didn't run a whole, a, a whole uh, lot of ammo through that one. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So you've done a lot of hustles. Uh, you've, you've sold comic books. You've built yeah. Twitter bots. Uh, you're, you're working this content game. You've done startups. How do you identify? opportunities and which one was maybe the best use of your time which one was the biggest like boondoggle um i've a uh, the, the thing for me is like opportunity like i and this is probably a really recent 
realization is like, especially when you're young and you don't have money and you're thinking about different things to do to make money. Yeah. You and your friends always sit down and you talk about different business ideas you have. And like it, it, by, by default, everyone goes to trying to shoot business ideas down on like why this won't work. There's no way this would work. Uh, yeah. That's easy to do. That's easy to do. Um, and I see that like it, as an adult now, there are lots of people who do that. And it, it's, it, it's a cop out to me. Like, okay, talking about why this won't work, that's that's the easy conversation to have. Let's have the conversation about how to make this work. How does how do you make something palatable? Like if 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 selling comic books is a stupid business idea, let me tell you about the bottled water industry. <laughs> like um you 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 can sell anything. Um, whether or not it's useful, that's another question. But like uh, but to go to your other question about like some of the more interesting um, ones that I did. So um, the comic books, that's probably, uh, that is probably the most interesting one. So how that started out is um, I, I was a big comic book nerd growing up and uh, re still read them a lot in my adult life. Not so much these days, but uh, one thing I noticed is the, the value of the first appearance of a certain comic book character would skyrocket um, once Marvel uh, was announcing their phase one movies. So like uh, Avengers one, when the first Avengers movie came out, that one surged in price and subsequently other, the spinoffs uh, would follow that same pattern. So effectively I just built a Twitter bot or not a Twitter bot, a uh, RSS feed scraper so that it would scrape PR news releases for whenever a new Marvel movie was announced. And I created um, a really simple database to cross reference the first appearance, pulling the keyword uh, of that character, finding that first appearance uh, issue. And then I'd be able to go look uh, on eBay and filter for the buy it now at the pre-inflated price uh, and just effectively just buy it at a pre-inflated price and relist it. And basically I was just drop shipping rare comic books and that yeah. scaled, that scaled to a point where I was just buying people's entire collections. Like I, you particularly secondary markets have always been interesting to me. Um, it's like collectors markets because they're incredibly inefficient. Um, there's very scarce information and data to collect and act off of and where there's inefficiency, there's always opportunity. So yeah. people are, people are always afraid of market friction. People are always afraid of volatility. Well, I'm sorry, but the, uh, the, those market environments, that's where money's made. That's where like serious money is made. And yeah. uh, in, like, I, I, I didn't make enough money to retire off of this comic book. It, it, it's a footnote in my career and kind of like just a fun story to talk about. But it, it was really cool. I, I was on I was on, I became a dealer and I was on the uh, um, the East Coast circuit going to comic book conventions and just hustling, just hustling these first appearances. It was and then the, what ended up happening was around 20. 15, 2014, the market started getting more efficient and people started doing the same thing I was doing. And as the market became more efficient, that opportunity kind of evaporated. Yeah. So in the, in the, um, so I'm, I'm currently exploring the just third-party book sales on Amazon, mm -hmm. uh, racket. And, yeah. um, is, so is there a reason why you just stuck to comic books or, you know, what, um, would you would you have scaled that into other avenues or why like why did you move on from that? 
I, I knew more about comic books than I know about rare books. Um, I, I was involved in the book hustle uh, when I was younger. Um, that, that market has also gotten very efficient. It's very hard to find an edge there. Um, yeah. But uh, it, it, textbooks, though, textbooks are still pretty lucrative from what I would what I'd imagine. But um, yeah, for, for me, it was just what I knew. Like I already had this a large amalgamation of useless knowledge about comic books. And I was like, Oh, there's money to be made with this. Let's apply it somewhere. And so that, that was, um, that, that was a big impetus behind that and why I didn't go with like the rare book market. I I did have, I did meet a bunch of people who dabbled in both worlds and particularly they were dealing with like rare first editions and things like that um, and estate sales, but like uh, any, any secondary market, like they're, just because it's hard to find an edge like right now with books, it doesn't necessarily mean there isn't an edge. The question that someone needs to balance is, is it worth my time to try and find where my edge is? It could be a particular subset of a market. It could be a particular author or whatever, but um, it's really just that running that cost benefit analysis of how much, how much ramp up time do I have to make before I need to make money before I can make money? And is it worth the effort? Like, what are my margins look like? Right. And I, I, I liked what you said about uh, how easy it is to shoot down something like this. Cause I, so as part of exit group, I'm talking to, uh, you know, a lot of the guys that have signed up for the group are already successful entrepreneurs and they're trying to support other people. Mm-hmm. And um, I've heard like really good ideas, really interesting ideas. Um, you know, none of them are the next Amazon, but they're like making a very comfortable living. They didn't have to go total blue ocean and like, and like, you know, it didn't have to be this world changing idea. It just had to be better than what was already there in some kind of way. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it totally resonates with me. And that's something that's new to me. This is my first sort of jump into this entrepreneurship world kind of, uh, by default, having lost my job. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, it's so encouraging to see there's just so many ways that you can make a living. Yeah. Um, yeah, for real. And like every, everyone tends to like self-select out, particularly like younger people who like don't have like real world experience. So they don't know how to price things. So like or price goods and services of, and by proxy know what people are willing to pay for. So like, uh, you see a lot of people self-selecting out of even trying because it's not an Amazon idea. It's not a Google idea. Well, guess what? You don't need uh, the, yeah. that. That is such a tiny fraction of what um, uh, what makes where people make their money. So I, I tend to think of things of can this scale to twenty thousand dollars a year? And my goal from the beginning was I want to have five discrete income streams aside from W-2 income where I'm making just 20 grand, uh, 20 grand. That, that's an easily attainable goal with a little bit of elbow grease. Like yeah. uh, if you stick with it and um, and refine your process, 20, 20 grand a year, that's uh, a little under 2K a month. Um, that's not a whole lot of money. Um, but if you have enough of those, it's just thinking in base hits versus trying to take the venture capital approach where you're only betting on uh, home runs. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, in addition to your day job, what sort of side angles are you looking at right now? What's interesting to you? Right now, um, I've, I'm interested in 
this this is probably a longer term thing, but I'm interested in creating a market for secondary markets, if that makes any sense. Uh, so when, when you when you think of um, like cryptocurrency that we talked we were talking about short, earlier before, um, and you think about like uh, secondary markets and secondary means of transactions, there's not a real easy way to bring buyers and sellers together. And that's kind of that's kind of why like we fell on money as a um, medium of exchange. It was a common denominator to make barter uh, because barter was inefficient. Uh, and so what I something I've been playing around with in my head is just buying land to facilitate like a free market, like an actual free market, like what we have in third world countries. Like we're, I, I guess in the US we call them like flea markets, but like think of it like you bring, if you're able to bring together enough like-minded buyers and sellers who want to get away from this fiat um, monetary system and exchange in, uh, it, it could, it doesn't necessarily, like, I'm not talking about creating like a barter system. I'm talking about creating an alternative means of exchange where yeah cryptocurrency or precious metals or ammo are considered uh, a currency. And like, it, it's always been a joke that like ammo is currency. Well, I mean, it kind of does meet all of it. It still is kind of a joke, but it's funny, especially in the last year we've seen that like, actually it kind of, it, it kind of does function as a currency. Like I've, I mean, I've if, sold things for ammo. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's if, divisible. <laughs> if, if, if 223 gets into like the, uh, the $2, $3 around range, that's, you know, you can carry that around in your pocket and, you know, get a sandwich and take it like, like it's, it's yeah. probably still a little too cheap to be efficient yeah. to carry around but it's getting there. <laughs> and in and, and a pinch, in a pinch, it works. Like I've, I've sold laptops for uh, cases of five, five, six. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Um, but I mean, does that scale? Yeah, you're right. It, it doesn't really scale. It's, <laughs> it's, it's more of like a flipping example. So like creating, so, creating something like this, it's still very uh, ill-defined in my head. Uh, well, and I mean, you're talking creating- about, you're talking about having more than one means of exchange. I mean, there are scales at which that is an efficient means of exchange. And so maybe you pick that one for those, that, that sort of range of transactions. And then yeah. if you want to buy a house or a boat, you use something else, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's uh, just sort of the right tool for the job. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Create, creating this market for non-traditional markets. That's, that's something that's interesting to me. Um cool. Uh, re- multifamily real estate has always been something that's been on my radar. Um, storage units, uh, those are, that's another thing. And then one, one other thing, this is another long-term project, but uh, this, I, this notion of blue collar venture capital. So like when we talk about venture capital, we we immediately go to like the Bay Area, um, SaaS companies and stuff like that. Uh, well, there, there's a lot of money that gets made in the blue collar world, like electricians, HVAC technicians here in Texas. No, like 100%. The, the wealthiest pe- the wealthiest people I know are mostly blue collar. And um, even in the ag industry, there's uh, tons of opportunities. So like creating a venture capital fund that invests in these types of uh, blue collar enterprises um, is is also something that's been an interesting idea for uh, probably a couple, like three, five years now. Um, The the problem here is like a lot of this is based on like human services. So it doesn't scale as elegantly as like software as a service does, but 
that that's a that's a challenge. That's not something that makes it um, not worth pursuing. If that makes sure. any sense. I mean, that's that's music to my ears. So the, for the first thing that we've uh, the first project that we're doing at, at Exit um, is I've got a friend who is a professional landscaper and uh, construction contractor. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, you know, what is the easiest way for somebody who's not going to go to college to, you know, build a life for themselves? And he said, well, bar none, it's landscaping. You go out, you, maybe you maybe you scrape together a thousand dollars and you go get your trailer, your mower, your blower, your weed whacker. And it's just this incredibly scalable business from like the smallest amount of startup capital. Mm-hmm. And we're actually building a, a curriculum that's like, all right, lesson one, go get a polo and khakis, go get a trailer, like the basics. And then all the way to here's how you hire your first employee. Here's how you hire your 15th employee and a, and a supervisor. Yeah. Uh, and it's the, the idea is take it from a thousand dollars to a million dollars. So uh, I totally agree. Like we're seeing, uh, I mean, like I'm not seeing now, but I'm seeing for the first time you know, I grew up in, in, uh, a school that was like, we're not even going to have shop classes because you guys are all going to go to college and you're going to have to pay somebody else to do that. Yeah. And, um, and, and so I'm, I'm watching these guys who, you know, he, he has one friend who worked for like four years, um, in like high school. And then they were able to like kick back and hand the business to somebody else. And they're just pulling it in as passive income now. And it's like, mm-hmm the the scale of possibilities that are in that blue collar space is just unreal so bottom line that seems like an awesome idea yeah yeah absolutely I, that that was speaking of hustles that was probably my first hustle uh, i oh, remember yeah. 1993 1994 i was in third grade i think maybe maybe give or take uh plus or minus one year but the Mor- the mortal Kombat movie had just came out and <laughs> i was begging my dad to take us to see it my dad hands me a Lowe's bucket and goes, go knock on the do- neighbor's doors and see if they need their weeds pulled. <laughs> and so I, I would, I would just go around the neighborhood pulling weeds. And like, I, I think I did like one or two yards to buy my ticket to go see Mortal Kombat. Uh, but that, that turned into a hustle, just pulling people's weeds for, I think I charged by the bucket of weeds and like, I would show them the bucket before emptying it. <laughs> But yeah, that was, uh, that, that was, that was how I got my start for sure. My, my, my dad was a hustler too. Like he used to, he used to, he, his parents grew up in the great depression. So that kind of rubbed off on him. My mom's from a third world country. And, uh, so they, um, my, my dad used to like pick up me and my brothers when we were little and put us into dumpsters to go dumpster diving, looking for (laughs) My, my dad, my dad was so cheap. When we took out the trash, we would have to bring the bag back. <laughs> oh, no way. Grind set, yeah. man. Exactly. <laughs> and really it, it's, it's very similar to like going to the gym, like having, having money is a formula that's very similar to losing weight. Um, or rather it's the inverse formula, bring in, bring in fewer calories than you expel. Uh, that's right. the formula for losing weight. And the opposite is true for m- making money, bring in more money than you spend. And it's pretty like my, my dad's in the projects and, um, 
he figured out how to do it. Uh, It's not that hard. What's hard about it is discipline. That's unfortunately something you can't really teach. And that's where having that discipline. And I think, I think that's why you see a lot of folks who do well in business usually have some sort of foundation in some hobby or skill that involves quite a lot of discipline. Um, Absolutely. I, I, so I I feel like there's a lot of guys um, in our space in the church. uh, Frugality is really common entrepreneurship is not. And I almost feel like there's, there's a lot of guys who will sort of scrimp and save at their day job and they have no context for like, okay, now what do I do with this money? How do I make this money grow? And so they like put it in the S and P or whatever, but they don't like there's there's no, um, there's no creativity to it. And so like, that's a, that's a big piece that I'm starting to learn for myself is like, you know, it doesn't take a ton of money to start something and to make something happen. Um, yeah. And like, not, not, not to knock like the index approach. Like I, I give the index people like all sorts of shit all the time, but like, uh, like that, that's a perfectly valid thing. Like at, at least it's not sitting in a savings account. It is working, but like there uh, it's, it's really that cost benefit analysis. Like, are you the type of person that wants to get your hands dirty or do, or do you just want a day job and keep off your index funds? Like, um, yeah. And depending on your opinions of like capital markets and things like that, like, uh, is that gravy train, how much longer does that gravy train last? Um, I I don't know, but, um, and like, but one thing's for sure is owning your own business, um, is like, we're seeing it today with the Biden mandate here with vaccines. Like you have a certain layer of independence being self-employed, um, that you don't, that you don't get from being a W2 employee. (laughs) Yes. hundred percent, hundred percent. And I mean, that was, that was a big part of my kick out the door was looking at my 401k balance, just go up and up and up and be like, what are the odds I'm going to see that money ever? What are the odds that's still going to be there when I'm 65? you know, you look at what could happen in five or 10 years and it's just, um, so, so, uh, yeah, part of, part of, uh, starting this business was like, no, I need to start accessing some of these resources that I'm just sort of piling up and do something with them while something can be done. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned, uh, before that, that citizen hush got started as a bot account. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That you were building followers more of as a, as an experiment and, and you were sort of selling the account Obviously, the technical side of that is something people can Google, but can you tell me a little bit about your strategy with these accounts? Were they all just vanilla meme accounts? Did you chase particular demos? Do you have any yeah. facts that you apply now? <laughs> uh, no, it's it's gotten a little less efficient these days. I don't really run a bot. So uh, in the early days of Instagram, I was, this is like pre-Facebook acquisition. I was building Instagram bots to auto-like, uh, auto-engage, auto-follow people based on keywords and their captions and hashtags they use. And even geo-targeting based on where they tagged their photo. And uh-huh. I would just have a, I would just have an account that would just go through and interact with them. Um Instagram's Instagram's rules have gotten way more strict uh, over the years, but you, uh, I used to, I would churn out uh, a meme account with 20, 40,000 followers and then I'd sell it. Um, and not, it wasn't a lot of money, but uh, I was a broke graduate student. So like, whatever, yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. it was, it was fairly easy to do. And like the same thing would happen on Twitter. 
um, I would just build up these accounts. Twitter accounts were a little bit, uh, the market for those isn't quite, uh, I would say companies still haven't found, figured out how to make Twitter work for them uh, with a handful of exceptions. So the value proposition of Twitter is a little bit more confusing to businesses. Yeah. Um, and uh, my, my personal account was just a bot account, scraping memes from Reddit and posting them as my own. Um, and it was around 2016 when like, I started just messing around on Twitter on my own account, just started throwing things out there or 2015. Yeah. And, um, and then that's when, and then since I had built up this following, I think at that point it was like, just like 14,000, 20,000 followers. Um, I, I was getting engagement on some of the stuff and that's when the dopamine hooks got in and I was like, Oh, this is kind of fun. Uh, and then I, I remember going through a couple iterations. Like originally, originally I was posting mostly just art. I'm actually blocked by Google street art, the account, because I, I created a bot to auto post uh, the artwork that they would post as my, as um, my, my bots uh, was curating it. And so Google uh -huh. street art blocked me. Um, and, and then it started going into like video games and stuff like that. And uh, it wasn't until 2018 that I kind of cut off the bots. And that's when I came out as a gun owner. And I, I lost like five or 8,000 followers like overnight. <laughs> Um, and then like I, I i remember the great the great purge of uh january 6 2021 um, oh I yeah lost, man, i was at, like cool. i was i was at uh i was like 114,000, and then i was down to like ninety two thousand or something like that lost a lot of good people that day we absolutely yeah did. we did we did gone but not forgotten <laughs> <laughs> oh man so so citizen hush was not originally like a you weren't you weren't targeting like the gun community you came into that later i did i did initially when i when i started when i lost those initial like thousands of followers when i came out of the closet as a gun owner um like I, it was the same thing targeting based on keywords hashtags and geolocation so i would filter out anyone any account outside of the US. Um, and then I would uh, target anyone with like the 2A hashtag. And then I would go to other um, large gun accounts. So like some of the more popular YouTube accounts and I would have my bot explicitly target um, the followers of those accounts uh, and just go engage with them. And uh, Twitter's gotten a little more strict uh, with their rules too. I've gotten my wrist slapped a few times in the last couple of years. That's why, that's why I really turned it off. And like, I've been open about, like, if you go to my Twitter account, I'm following 64,000 people. I didn't sit there following 64,000 people. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah. And it, like, it, it was just an interesting social experiment. And I actually saved a lot of the data to look at the conversion rate of different hashtags and keywords and it, it was really interesting to see um what converted uh because i wanted to create a formula of like what does it take to build uh an automated social media following and uh, yeah. this this is kind of like still the nascent days of social media and um so you got you could get away with a lot more back then now nowadays it's a little uh dicier to try and do some of the things i did <laughs> yeah yeah so you're kind of uh you, like for, for an account like mine, where like I have painstakingly gotten up to 10,000, it would be kind of betting the farm to, to automate. And, yeah. And risk. Yeah. yeah. 
Exactly. Exactly. I, 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 I've personally turned it, I turned it off a few years ago on my personal account just because it just, it, it stopped being worth it. I kept getting like flagged by Twitter of yeah. detecting like automated behavior. And I was just like, all right, whatever. And, <laughs> and also like people, people started like pointing it out and I was like, yeah, dog, I'm open about this. Like I, yeah. I this was a social experiment. Like I'm not trying to hide nothing. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, so as far as, um, as far as the way that you personally approach the account, um, do you, so your, your social media, is that something that you are really just doing for fun or are you, are you attacking it from with like a, a, a growth kind of like, I want to build a following. I want to take this somewhere. Yeah. I'll be honest. Like I, I don't really have a plan. <laughs> it's a whole it's a whole lot of just throwing stuff out like you can see it like on on my timeline like i think last night i tweeted communism like one word like what (laughs) and and that's that's kind of like my uh that's kind of my entire shtick i think like i'm just this stream of conscious guy that just occasionally says something funny (laughs) yeah okay all right yeah, for, for um, me, it's more of just a means to an end. Like, I, I make money from those 2A deal alerts that I tweet out, um, like through affiliate links and stuff like It's not a meaningful amount of money, but um, it, I like to think that it, I'm not entirely wasting my time on Twitter, <laughs> but I, I definitely am. I definitely am. <laughs> but like the, the flip side to that is I've met tons of cool people from it and built lots of really good relationships. Like, I write for Guns America now because of a relationship I forged from Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I've never, I've never like directly made money from Twitter, but I got the job that I got fired from, from Twitter. Oh, okay. So so that was some money. Um, so uh, in a couple of podcasts you've done, you refer to parallel systems that make gun control impossible. From what I understand, the idea is to get enough 3d printed guns into enough hands that confiscation becomes impractical. Mm-hmm. Um, so is the thinking that if Amer- enough Americans own guns that, that like, it'll be politically impractical, like electorally impractical to ban them? Uh, what's the thinking there? So I, th- I think my, my old stance was, oh, create, a, create as many gun owners as we can to make, uh, gun control impossible. And now with the advent of 3d printed guns, um, P80 guns, stuff like that, like, now it's gotten to the point where like, okay, you, even if you did go door to door, like the information's out there. And like, I'm, 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 I'm adjacent to the 3d printed gun community because like I, I, I've, I've printed my own guns and I've shot my own guns. I'm friends with uh, control pew Vin and those guys. Um, Vin stays at my house a couple times now. And um, like for me, like I'm, I wouldn't consider, I, I, I wouldn't try and steal their thunder. Like that's their baby. Like they're the design, them and their legion of developers who are creating these designs. Those are the folks that like, that's the 3D printed gun community. All I'm trying to do is help give some legitimacy to what they're doing in the mainstream firearms world. Because one of the things you're noticing is a lot of traditional gun manufacturers are like closeted supporters of what's going on with the 3d printed gun world, but none of them will come out and vocalize support for them because um, it's a political hot topic right now. And so I'm, I'm just trying to normalize what they're doing. Like, like creating your own guns, creating your own ammunition. Like that's, that's about as American as it gets. Like there's nothing, there's nothing um, uh, that should be kind of 
seen shady about that. Like I went to the 3D Guns and Bitcoin conference and spoke there uh, in April. And like, um, if if the if the media were to try and profile the types of people who would go there, you'd think it would just be like gangbangers, criminals, stuff like. No, it's just it's just right. a bunch of really interesting people who like playing with this technology and like creating this technology to make it accessible to other folks. That's all it is, and right. um, like. Control Pew and Vin and Ivan, uh, I've I've met these guys, hung out with them in person, and like they're they're some of the most genuine, like kind-hearted people like you could ever um, meet. And like I told Vin when he came on my YouTube channel, I was like the stuff you guys are doing and um, uh, working on with your anonymous developers, like y'all are the found y'all are doing like founding father stuff right now. <laughs> Like they, they're putting themselves at risk, not just like physically, but also like legally, like yeah. Um, yeah. given the, the, given the climate we're in and they're doing it in the in the name of, Hey, the state shouldn't have jurisdiction over what we do. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's, uh, it, it's really humbling to be around these guys and um like it's it, they're, they're moving the needle they are moving the needle for freedom and liberty in this in the world far more than any blue check mark uh account uh, does yelling at twitter because they're actually doing something about it 100 <laughs> percent. and you're watching as the the legitimacy of the institutions that oppose this are collapsing and just trust in the media is collapsing and that is a good news story for these guys because it's 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 making it less weird, less fringe. Uh, even even in our our little group, you know, I, I didn't want it to be like, um, a, a, like a right wing ghetto where it was like, you know, <laughs> you know weirdos who wanted to just say slurs. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm finding that with the vax mandates and and just just the everyday sort of uh, infringement on your liberty all the time. Uh, that more and more like regular, successful, put together people have had enough. And, and, um, and so it's, it's really interesting to watch. I wanted to go back to one point you made about the gun manufacturers. I'm, I'm kind of surprised to hear that they support this given that it, it's, uh, it's competition. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's more, I, I, and I'm getting out of my lane a little bit here, uh, because I, I, my, my observation, because like we, we can see who likes posts and stuff. Uh, my wow. observation in the public sphere has been like, oh yeah, these companies find the footage that uh, the catalog folks, the turns dispense folks are putting out. Like they like it. They like yeah. it. They think it's cool. Um, but they're, they're not coming out and defending these guys they're not coming out supporting them financially um in any way not not to say that they they should and they have like a moral obligation to but like we we tend to put ourselves into tribes when really we'd be much more effective like we have a common enemy here and it's politicians (laughs) and what 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 the folks at Gatalog are doing um like that's in my mind that's complimentary like they're they're the folks at Gatalog are guaranteeing the existence of a gun industry <laughs> yeah. yeah no that's true and 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 in, the, in a big picture perspective i mean these guys could these guys could sell as many guns as they could possibly produce it's not like there's a really 
a constrained demand for this stuff, uh, artificially constrained by, by, you know, regulation, but yeah, so that, that makes sense. I, I wanted to ask you about, um, so I, I talked to a, a small ammo business. One of, one of our guys was like, Hey, what about getting into this business? And I, so I was like, well, I'll go find the guy and we'll talk about it. Mm-hmm. And he said, um, you know, the, the primer industry, the people who make the primers, uh, because it's explosive and it's toxic, you've got EPA, ATF, OSHA, all kinds of regulation on the primer industry. There's only four players and it's the mm-hmm. big, you know, it's Winchester. It's the big, uh, ammo manufacturers that are allowed to play in that space. Um, do you think that there is a potential solution to the ammo issue in the same sense that we found a solution to, you know, the 3d printing guns? Yeah. And I, I believe there's a lot of really promising prototypes that are being developed here. Um, like DIY, DIY ammo, not necessarily strictly in the sense of like reloading, like, um, Atlas arms is developing something, um, uh, like kind of homebrewed ammo, uh, that, that, that would actually be a really interesting conversation. He came on, uh, the owner of Atlas arms came onto my uh, YouTube channel to talk through about that. Um, I, I, that's getting out also getting out of my lane. Like okay, I'm not, okay. a, I, I'm not a reloader and I'm, I'm like, I'm like a elementary level competency 3d printer. Like I, I know enough to print enough failed guns to post videos <laughs> to people making fun of me. <laughs> right, and right. to be to be clear, like when I say, and I'm explicit in my, whether it's a P80 video or a 3D printed gun video, like the, the weakest link in the process is the human assembling it. Like it's not the printer's fault that you didn't set get your settings right the first time. That's my fault. And with the yeah. Polymer 80, it's not Polymer 80's fault that like you didn't remove enough material to get your weapon to uh, reliably cycle. Um, and it's it, like my, my failures with 3D printed guns is not a co- condemnation of uh, 3D printed guns. It's it's more of a reflection of my ability uh, to yeah. build one myself because I've, I've shot ones that function flawlessly like um and I would say it's it's still a very uh, young young process and in industry. But like when you look at where we are today, relative to where we were just three five years ago, like we have made exponential improvements and in, in how easy this is to be able to uh, do. And uh, all credit goes to the fo- the folks on the front line who are actually creating these designs, um, putting putting this out there for free, um, yeah. and. Like the, that's, that's a, that speaks testament to like these people's like character. Like they're doing this like out of passion, not, um, not because someone's paying them to. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you, you've mentioned that you've had several that have failed and I, you know, I'm not trying to uh, scare anybody. In fact, I'm kind of trying to do the opposite. So if you've gone yeah. through some failures and you're still doing it, then that says to me that like the scale of what's likely to happen in terms of 3d printed gun failing is, mm-hmm. is tolerable in terms of like, it's not just going to explode and kill you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. When I said, yeah, that, like, thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. Um, like I, I printed a DD, DD 19.2. It's a 3d printed Glock design, one of the newer ones. And um, my, my layer height on my printer was 
I, I screwed up the settings and uh, what ended up happening is like when I went to do test fire my first round, um, the frame just cracked in my hand. Um, that's all that okay. happened. Like uh, the only thing that happened, like, so like when the slide cycled uh, after the first round went off, I'm assuming the, the force against my grip, like the, the frame just cracked in half. Like there was, there was no pain. Like all, all I noticed was, Oh, yeah. my frame. I knew this didn't look right, <laughs> but um, I, I went for it anyway. And like I, I, I successfully printed a DD seventeen dot two, and also an uh, a uh, Hellfire um, Anderson Hellfire uh, AR as well. The, the AR actually, I was able to get the first. That was actually my first print that I did. I was able to get that uh, working uh, pretty pretty flawlessly early. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's really like when if you're a lot of my gunsmith friends like they they get first time builders who come in and they try to build their first glock or build their first uh ar-15 they come in like yeah they just did something stupid that's why it didn't work <laughs> and it, it's usually the human is the common denominator um is when it comes to this assembly process and and i mean uh, the barrel and the chamber and the slide those are all still metal parts right so there's mm -hmm. not like that, that you're not like firing a the explosion is not happening there right yeah yeah, it's you, you. You're just printing a frame. Now there, there are with like the FGC nine that was just released. Uh, I think a couple months ago. Um, like the, you, that has like a DIY barrel that uh, you're able to create uh, your, yourself using um, just metal rods. And uh, I forget what the process is called, but you're using electricity and water to uh, rifle a uh, rifle it yourself. Um, yeah. We're, we're getting closer. I, I don't know how that would be a better question for control Pew and Vin and uh, Ivan and those guys. But, uh, but the idea would be like it, it shouldn't be purpose built firearm parts. You want to get to a point where it's kind of more or less like household materials, Home Depot type mm -hmm. materials. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that effectively democratizes uh, self-defense. Um, <laughs> like yeah. it, the, the, this information's out there. It's not going anywhere. Um and that's uh, that, that's what I like about it. They're they're doing some they're doing something about gun legislation. Like you've got great groups like Gunners in America, Firearms Policy Coalition, who are fighting like the traditional route, like within the confines of the system. And then you have an asymmetrical approach, which is just ignoring the system and saying, "Screw you guys, we're gonna we're gonna figure out a way to do it on our own." Yeah, and I mean, you know, so door to door confiscation probably not feasible even without three D printing. There's just a bazillion guns in this country. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't, I, I think the fact that we can't even get an approximate tally is pretty indicative, <laughs> <laughs> indicative right. of how many guns there are in this country. Right. But, um, you know, they, they still can do the whack-a-mole approach where they, they come get you if you discharge it, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and, and do you, do you see a future for a, a way around that or is it going to have to be just sort of we we have to get this thing popular enough that the political system won't create laws like that i i don't know the answer to that man um yeah. i don't I'm, I'm not i don't really follow the news too much like uh the, the news that gets to me is just what shows up in my feed like i don't read the news i don't watch the news like it, i i cut that out in 2013 my life has been very peaceful since then. <laughs> um and uh so you're just looking at the technical solution you're looking at you're looking at this is an yeah. engineering product and yeah yeah and 
I'm, I'm, yeah, and I'm, I'm just interested in people who are doing something about the problem, whether it's uh, what the work that Firearms Policy Coalition is doing or GOA. They're more on the policy side and like uh, filing legal cases and stuff. And that's not that's not my cup of tea, quite frankly. But yeah, the, the specialization, the the fact that the fact that they are good at it uh, is incredibly valuable to me. Um, me, I'm just good at running my mouth and sh- shooting guns, <laughs> like and just creating more gun owners that's really what i want to do just get more people involved in this by just being a friendly approachable dude that won't like gatekeep (laughs) if you're if you have a loose interest in firearms roger that i want to talk about bitcoin yeah for sure Um, what's up so you've said uh if people think u.s government can shut down bitcoin they're just showing they don't know what they're talking about because they'd have to shut down essentially the internet. And I, I am not a Bitcoin pessimist. I have a decent chunk of my savings in Bitcoin, Ethereum. Yeah. I'd really like to have to share your confidence. <laughs> uh, and, and so can you explain what you mean by that? Can they not just monitor the network and go after anyone performing non-KYC transactions? Like, Yeah, yeah. The, the, only, the most effective way, and we have precedents for the government doing things like this. So like, I forget what the executive order was when uh, it effectively became illegal for citizens to own gold, basically. And um, I I think uh, that that's actually a good precedent to compare that to like, what was the compliance rate with that? Oh, it was, I think, I believe it was less than 20% compliance rate. Um, Now, KYC versus non-KYC, like, there, there are people out there like uh, Econo Alchemist uh, who wait, know way more about this and ways to circumnavigate that system. But like, the, the, I think the component of shutting down the internet um, to be able to shut off the network, yeah. uh, like that's that's one problem. Um, the, the what what they're trying to do now is going after custodial. Um, fiat on ramp, so like things like Gemini, Kraken, Coinbase, things like that, where they can do ch- ostensibly do chain an- on chain analytics and um, effectively triage who who owns what because you have that uh, identity tied to your wallet on a custodial exchange. Um, right. The other the other notion too is like if they were going to come down with some draconian law to shut down um, these exchanges. Uh, the time to have done that was five to eight years ago. Um, right now, we are in a multi-billion-dollar um, industry. Like we have multiple publicly traded companies uh, that are playing in the space. We have multiple institutional funds that are invested in these companies and actually hold, have their own holdings of cryptocurrency. Yeah. We have we have Fortune 100 companies that are putting cryptocurrency on their balance sheets. Like the ramif- the the economic ramifications of okay, hey, guess what? Coinbase, you're going to have to take one for the team. What you do is now illegal and facilitating what you do is now illegal. And Coinbase I believe is the number one facilitator of institutional transactions in the United States. So like Tesla used um, Coinbase uh, to uh, facilitate their acquisition of Bitcoin. And now you have the network effect has reached the institutional level. You now have you now will crash the economy. And whether or not the federal government would be okay with it, you can make an argument, a compelling argument that right. yes, the, the federal government would take that bullet to protect the dollar hegemony. Um, but uh, the odds are increased. Like every every day that goes by that this doesn't happen, the network effects get stronger because this is an organic system that developed from the ground up. This wasn't a command control system. Um, 
And so like, I, I would, I would say it's something I consider, but I, I consider it far less likely. It keeps me up at night way less than it used to a uh, handful of years ago. Um, yeah. I mean, that's, but, that's, I think that's a great, that's a great argument for the survival of the network uh, because yeah, mm-hmm. they're not gonna, they're not gonna nuke visa. They're not going to nuke, you know, Harvard, which I understand has a significant investment in Bitcoin. Um, yeah. The endowment, but can't they, can't they turn that into a walled garden where everybody's on KYC and everything's tracked and monitored? They could, they could. Um, but then you're just creating another secondary market because that's what, like, we already have secondary markets, like local Bitcoins. Um, you've got Bitcoin ATMs, I'm assuming would go away if that became a thing, but you have different, um, uh, approaches to acquire non-KYC. Like I've I've sold firearms for cryptocurrency. Um, it's perfectly yeah. legal. My peer, uh, in-person sales in Texas are legal and I just opted to accept cryptocurrency for it. Same way that I also sold firearms for silver. It's no different. Um, and uh, it's, it, yeah, th- I think I think the more real risk is making, making it, ex- accessibility a challenge um and accessibility within the confines of a walled garden um i think that's probably the more realistic threat uh but that doesn't stop it um like making uh making that claim that the government can flip a switch and shut it off that that's where i'm just kind of like okay so you've read a couple headlines about that right right right. i'm I'm with you there like there's 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 like some magical server rack where like uh, Jerome Powell can just walk in and hit the off switch and it's dead. Um, right. Yeah, that, 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 that's not, that's not, that's not a real threat. <laughs> Roger that. Okay. Um, you mentioned in another podcast about um, working in the tech industry and sort of what components of the tech industry are more, uh, more meritocratic Um mm-hmm sort of easier to have wrong think opinions in. Um, uh, If you were advising someone who wants to get into the tech industry now and they're starting out and they have, you know, some no, no opinions, Mm -hmm. um, would you tell them to go like deep into the back end? What kinds of languages and components of development would you tell them to try? Yeah. I think, I think more importantly, like, being being safe with your political views uh that i don't think that should guide your career decision i think it should be a consideration um because quite frankly it it does it does get really annoying to just be constantly bombarded by this echo leftist echo chamber but um like i i first i would just i I get this question all the time um from folks in college but like what do you want to do like what's interesting to you and the answer to that question then informs, okay, well, you want to be a JavaScript developer because you like building pretty web applications, um, uh, or you want to be a front-end developer because you like design. Um, well, unfortunately, that's where the bulk of the echo chamber lives. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, and then, but like if, um, and one th- thankfully, the folks who have more liberty-minded uh, opinions, uh, tend to be more interested in the more abstract uh, side of the tech world, which is on the back end engineering side of things, as well as InfoSec. And 
the 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 shining light there is that is very much still a meritocracy. It's not so much about how many conferences did you speak at and how loud are you on Twitter about um, your outrage of the day. Right. Uh, it's solely pretty much about like can you do the job or can you not? Um, because the the skills gap between uh, how many how many people who can do um, and I'm using the backend engineering is a very broad term, but like, and uh, so like the the amount of the amount of people we need with that skill set, and the amount of people with that skill set is so far wide. Like, there's a lot more um, willingness to um, overlook uh, wrong think <laughs> yeah. in, in in the echo chamber, um, and like I, particularly within infosec, like infosec is probably the least. Uh, the least of an echo chamber as far as uh, the tech industry is like in, even in the back end world, you still get some remnants of it, but uh, it's definitely far more muted. Like a lot of the folks in the back end world are aren't extroverted by nature to begin with. So they're going to be less vocal about their opinions, what, whatever those opinions are. Um, and uh, they're much more concerned with like, can you build this? Yes or no. Yeah. Um. So one of the things that's challenging about uh, the sort of emergency preparedness and, and self-reliance space is people have wildly different opinions about timing the decline, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we see things, we see things changing pretty dramatically. Um, and if it goes Mad Max in the next five years, then, you know, you should loot your 401k, go buy <laughs> bullets. Um, but if things stay on this sort of glide path and maybe you and I get old, under the present conditions, uh, the investment strategy changes quite a bit. And I know that like, nobody knows for sure. I'm kind of asking you just for your guess, what, what are you hedging? Where, where do you think it's going? And, and what do you think is the best way to prepare? Do you have like a hedging strategy? Uh, yeah. I mean, like uh, hedging, hedging in the sense of like the traditional financial term. Yes. Um, like I, I come from a finance background, but, um, yeah. I, I would, uh, to me, like what's, what keeps, what's always been like a thing that kept me up at night was like, what will make like financially, what will blow me up? <laughs> and I want to remove the ability to be blown up. Um, right. and that's, that's, and I don't know anything about timing. So like, I, I've never, I've never been a directional trader, um, in that regard. Uh, so like timing doesn't really concern me. What matters to me is like how diversified are your uh, skills and your income streams? Um, every, everyone, like everybody I've talked to about like any type of doomsday scenario immediately goes to like this red dawn um, uh, kind of scenario. And yeah. uh, like there's, people and like you see this like prepper communities and stuff like dudes who are like stockpiling food for to last the family for three years water for three years ammo all this other stuff solar panels and i'm like dog you 100 pounds overweight maybe you should uh prep for that one <laughs> or, or like yo dog you, you 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 got 20 grand in credit card debt maybe you should work on that one <laughs> like yeah, the, yeah. the amount so many intermediate threats and there's it's not it's not particularly well thought out. 
Yeah. And again, I'm kind of poking fun at the prepper community and like, and like, I've learned a lot of really great things from the prepper community. And, but that is, that is a stereotype for a reason. (laughs) Um, And for me, I think it's just like, don't fixate so much on like what will, what this, what the end, what the end doomsday scenario will look like, because then you're going to anchor to that. I think the better question is like, how do I diversify myself, my skills, and my assets um, to to not be a liability to other people? And when you reframe that question from what does the end of the world look like and how can I become a world warlord in the end of the world to like, <laughs> how can I just be a more useful person? It becomes a much more healthy uh, conversation and it becomes yeah. more productive, quite frankly, um, because th- that, that type of allocation translates to the world we live in today. And if, if the world goes down the toilet tomorrow, it also translates into the Mad Max realm also. So like, yeah. but like when, and like, I'm not talking about like skills, like sure. Like uh, bushcraft and stuff like that. Like that, that's a cool skill to have. It's useful. I get it in the end and it's useful today and it's useful in an apocalypse scenario. But I feel like um, most guys will without much prompting, learn the cool stuff. Exactly. Like, yeah. You don't need to, you don't need to like try real hard to teach yourself the cool stuff. Like you'll just pick that up, mm-hmm. maybe focus on the practical, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I use bushcraft as an example. Like I, th- I think bushcraft is really cool. And I think that's like an awesome skill to have, but it's also one that I'm not interested in. <laughs> so like, um, like that, that's not a skill set that I'm actively cultivating or anything. If, if that's a hobby that someone's interested in and it also complements like w- one of their concerns or whatever, then sure, yeah. go for it. If it, it's perfectly natural to have a hobby like that, and I'm not going to knock it, but like and a huge, it's so much harder to diversify internally when it's a lot easier to just make some friends. Exactly. I, I <laughs> and that, that's the other thing too. Like, social skills like you have dog that you, you need to work on that a little bit you, yeah. you, <laughs> you know like how many how many gun guys i meet who will not stop talking or like inject look listen into a conversation not because they're interested in what a person is saying but looking for a way to inject their own opinion or something about themselves into the conversation yeah. like i'm just like dog just shut up and like learn how to like talk to people man <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no kidding. Uh, so, um, so that's, that's, that's good. That, that's, that think that covers it. Um, are you at all familiar? This is, this is my last one on, on sort of parallel systems. Are you familiar at all with Urbit? Urbit, Urbit, Urbit. Uh, U-R-B-I-T. Is that how it's spelled? So I don't know if you know Moldbug. He's, so he's the, he was just on Tucker Carlson. Very interesting, very smart guy. Um, but he's obsessed with politics. I'm not surprised you haven't heard of him. <laughs> um, well, but, but he created this uh, essentially. Uh, he says it's supposed to replace the Internet. What it is de facto right now is a an encrypt an encrypted peer to peer social media network. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's intended to be a decentralized solution for social media when everybody gets kicked off. And it's like you you own your ID and you like have to buy it with money and then it's yours. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's kind of in that same lane of of 
personal accountability, personal ownership, you know, uh, staking out space of your own. Um, but it's definitely doesn't have, um, the penetration, obviously, <laughs> since you haven't heard of it. Um, yeah. it's definitely not something grandma's going to use anytime soon, but, um, yeah, I, I, I wanted to see if you, if you'd heard of that, but since you haven't. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I've heard of other projects, particularly like in the crypto worlds. So like I believe I for, I'm, the name's escaping me. I think it's Algoraland. Um, I might be mistaken there, but it, did you ever, you, have you ever heard of that game? Uh, Second life or basically yeah. you, it, it's like that for web 3.0. Um, okay. Where like you can buy digital real estate and like that is your plot of land and you, your identity on web 3.0 is like your, uh, entry point to many different social networks. I, I I may be speaking out of my lane here also, but I think that's the gist of it. Um, I, I I remember I've been in crypto for so damn long. Like I learned my lesson many years ago on like trying to follow all the interesting projects. Like you'll go insane um, doing that. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I may be, I may be uh, misspeaking here, but I'll double check myself on that. I think it's called Algoraland. It's similar to yeah. that. But, I mean, like, no, I'm, I'm all supportive of people. Like every, everybody will kind of like the side hustle and entrepreneur thing we started talking about with like, it's easy to tell people why something will fail. I yeah. want to encourage people to keep trying like yeah. 90, 95, 90. We're so early in this game, 95, 99% of you will probably fail, but I want you to keep trying, keep trying. Cause that's, that's like, everyone thinks of like innovation as this big bang innovation. We're like, Bunch, bunch of smart people get together in a room like we're gonna build a thing called google no that's not how innovation works dog like it's stochastic yeah. like there's lots of failure along the way um there's lots of going back to the drawing board um things never work the first time sometimes things don't even work out the way you think they work out um yeah. and uh i th th that's why like i'm just I try to be a cheerleader for all these different things, whether it's in the crypto world or whether it's 3D printed guns with like uh, the catalog folks and just encouraging them because like they've got enough people shitting on them already. Like they uh -huh. don't need my voice criticizing. <laughs> and probably themselves internally, you know, they're thinking of their assessing yeah. all the doubts and all the fears and yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and like, that's, that's kind of like my whole identity on the internet. Like the, the nice guy who is positive or tries to be positive all the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, in, in terms of what, uh, one of the things that I'm most excited about with crypto is uh, like industrial applications, ways that it's going to be actually sort of used, not just as a token of value, but it, you know, yeah industrial applications, finance applications. Um, is that a world that you're interested in? Or, and do you see anything cool coming down the pike there? Yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, that was probably my earliest. And so DeFi on the Ethereum network, um, my injection point, like I, but in crypto years, like I'm a great grandpa at this point. Um, but right. like in 20, 2017, 2018, I think, um, like I had been involved with Ethereum and Bitcoin for years before that. But, um, like I remember when MakerDAO first came out and then compound.finance, very simple things like collateralized debt. Um, you put up, you put up a certain amount of money as collateral, you're able to pull out, um, 
uh, pull out equity uh, from that. Uh, like yeah. uh, debt markets are are indicative of a highly functioning economy. Well, fast forward three years or three four years from then, and like now the the credit market and crypto is hundreds of billions of dollars, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's. Uh, DeFi is where like DeFi's reached like this Cambrian explosion. I think I think it was like last year because I remember opening up my first compound up finance account um, for like a, a high yield savings account on stable coins like back in I think it was 2018. Um, and now we now we're getting into all sorts of different yield uh, farming uh, liquidity like the, the the things that we've done in DeFi and that we're seeing roll out in DeFi. Um, are things that took decades to develop in the traditional financial world. Um, and it's like we, we, we are getting into like exotic derivatives territory in DeFi. And like these are, these are just regular everyday people who just find these projects interesting. And uh, that's, uh, I, I, I think DeFi is what drove the last run up. Uh, that we saw in the fall of 2020, and uh, to be quite frank, I do. DeFi is the first like multi-billion-dollar, potentially trillion-dollar um, application that's within blockchain because um, traditional financial markets, particularly illiquid uh, derivatives markets, like that—that's where Goldman makes their money. Uh, <laughs> the, the the spreads in some of these exotics are enormous, and that's Goldman making those markets, capturing those threat spreads. And what we're doing is we're automating that uh, and we're creating a trustless layer. And that's that that's fascinating like, that things have progressed so quickly in such a short span of time. And like at this point, quite frankly, I can't even keep up with it. Like I'm just I'm just this boring dinosaur at this point. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, I, I wanted to talk to you um, real quick about, uh, you know, you're a celebrity like it or not, no. <laughs> uh, you're famous. People know you, uh, and, and we can see your face. Um, mm -hmm. and you, uh, I know you say you're apolitical, but you do talk about some, some, some bad guys that are out there. And that are powerful. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you think that that creates vulnerability? So I'm, I'm in this position myself, where my name and face are connected to sort of my online identity. And I'm just now starting to navigate what that means. Um, how have you handled that? And has it been something that, that's concerned you at all? Yeah. Um, 2018, I used to go by my real name on Twitter and uh, I had a few people attempt to dock. They had a few people tag my employer in some of my posts um that's when that's when i went with the citizen hush uh name and th that that's what citizen hush is nodding to like it's just a joke to stop snitching <laughs> <laughs> um and uh yeah it, it, it's it's uh it probably occupies maybe one percent of my mental capacity at this point like at this point like i'm not doing anything illegal i'm not saying anything overtly inflammatory um yeah and like I'm all I'm all for free association, but like um, deplatforming people and things like that. Like my my stance on that. Like I used to have a very like free market approach to that, but like I think seeing the extent of deplatforming and what that does and the ramifications of it, like I've reached a point where I'm like, actually now, 
you are a private company in name, but the right. moment you start ex- the moment you start accepting public money in the form of funding from uh, direct subsidies or uh, funding from uh, institutional sovereign wealth funds from any state, not even the United States, any state, or even just the or even just the regulations that make them de facto monopolies that exactly that cut out their competition. I mean, there's so the 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 levers of state power have infected the corporate world so deeply that it's hard to say that they're separate things. And that that's what's scary because that's what scares me the most actually, because that's the literal definition of fascism. (laughs) Um, And yeah, the the moment you lobby for, you spend private resources to lobby for special favors, accept subsidies in the form of either direct subsidies or investment from sovereign wealth funds. Like you're no longer a private company. I'm sorry. You, you are benefiting from the economies of scale that come with government um, and government force. And the moment you start doing that, you don't get the same benefits uh, a mom and pop short, uh, shop gets. I'm sorry. Uh, right. that, that's kind of how I feel about like these social media companies and things like that. Like it's, uh, yeah, not, not anymore, not anymore. And like for me, like my identity, like I've reached a point now where um, I'm close enough to uh, financial independence to where it doesn't really, it doesn't phase me too much. Like it's a, It'll push back. It'll push back the the champagne bottles popping a couple years. But I mean, <laughs> nah. That's that's kind of the thing. Like when when you like what we were talking about, like this doomsday thing. Like when you have done enough to build enough fail safes from an income perspective and from a skills perspective, like you're not beholden. You're not beholden to a single employer. And like having W2 income was always terrifying to me because it's, it's very similar to like uh, what you're seeing with the government today uh, with the vaccine mandate. Um, If you, if you don't want the vaccine, but you take any form of government service that provides a basic necessity, whether it's healthcare, education, whatever, well, you got to do what the government tells you to do. And it's the same thing with W-2 income. If, if you are beholden to your W-2 income from an employer, they have leverage over you, quite frankly, and you are going from being an independent person to an indentured servant. Um, and Absolutely. That, that has always been something I've tried to diversify myself away throughout my career. Yeah, I mean... Uh- the biggest sort of awakening uh, from from my experience of being doxxed and fired was the realization that, uh, you know, even if they couldn't send the police to kick in my door for the things that I've said, they could take away my kid's health insurance. You know, my, my kid was having a weird medical issue that we were concerned about. And all of a sudden I don't have insurance. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, we were blessed that, uh, we had enough runway to, to, to make this new project happen. But like, I think about all the guys who don't have that kind of runway. And mm-hmm. so for them to like, keep their head down and their mouth shut, I'm like, I totally get it. And what I want from what I'm doing is to get them in the position that you're talking about where they just, you know, maybe it stings a little bit, maybe it slows some things down, but they don't have this existential terror of being, you know, caught in those gears. So yeah, totally understand. I'm I'm with you a hundred percent. Yeah. It it seems like that's an unintended consequence of 
this push of we've created this um, unintentional manufacturing plant where we've created an economy that's so tied to having a college degree and we've pumped in cheap debt to help finance college degrees, artificially making college degrees more expensive. So you need to take out each generation has to take out more debt to get a college degree in order to get that job. And now we're at the point where the college debt is so high per capita that like it is creating an existential crisis um, with people. When you, when you have a hundred K in debt, uh, as a 22 year old hovering over your head. Um, I, that was me. Um, when I left grad school, when I left grad school, I had like 90 K in student loans. And, um, and the, when you have that hovering over your head, like that's, that's a scary feeling. And you're, you're a little, you're a little more, your principles are a little more flexible. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's, that's, uh, power will find, whatever pathway like it's an evolutionary process if Mm -hmm. if people can't if people can't coerce you one way they're going to find another and right now the way they're doing it because we technically still have the constitution is is they're they're using employers and it's so interesting to me the way that uh you know you, you talked about mom and pop shops like the the corporation is so big that when you're defending that corporation's rights you're not really defending any human autonomy, any human agency. There's nothing behind it. It's, exactly. it's just a system that's totally separate from any one person. And whereas if you're defending the mom and pop shops right to exist, then you're, you're really defending mom and pop. You're, there's human beings. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely had a, a, so I'm an econ guy myself and I definitely had a libertarian spell and, um, and it, it sounds like, you know, like you said, you're using that word uh, as a shorthand because you don't want to get into it. Uh, yeah, exactly. But like, yeah, you know, if, if you're smart and you're paying attention, you, you see that there's nuance there and that the state doesn't just mean the state. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it means all of its tentacles and all the things the tentacles touch. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, too, because like we've meant if you look at the distribute like we've effectively erased the middle class because we've allowed we've we've created all these government special favors to corporate interests where now you can't really yeah like what you were saying you can't defend a corporation as a small business because it's not really like that it's not the same thing like it's a legal entity at that point and um we've effectively erased this middle class that was the bedrock of um, the American economy, which was entrepreneurial and um, in, in nature. And like, as you, as you can see, like entrepreneurial activity in this country has gone down. And what we've done is we've created more and more debt slaves who are beholden to corporations who are in bed with the government and it's a nasty, nasty, vicious cycle. And like, I, I don't think that there was like, and there's no nefarious design into this. I just think it's an unintended consequence of the incentive structures over the course of decades of cheap debt and um, government intervention. Yeah. When you, when you talk about, uh, I, I mentioned this uh, on my Substack a little early, when you talk about laissez faire and a huge portion of the economy is run by these sort of, rapacious artificial intelligences that are like, like a a corporation is in a sense, like a profit maximizing artificial intelligence. It's not, Mm -hmm. uh, it's not really run by the CEO. It's, it's this really distributed 
network. And so when you're talking about laissez-faire, let them do, who are you talking about? You're not talking about human beings. And, and that's my, my attitude is I, I believe in freedom for humans. Yep. And, <laughs> and I'm so, with you. And so whatever it takes to maximize that, that's what I'm interested in. Um, well, I, been, I, I, I heard it. I heard a trace of Frederick Hayek in that one. <laughs> you know, I, I, I haven't done the, uh, the reading like I should, <laughs> but that sounds great. <laughs> I, I, I just read the wikipedia actually yeah. reading Aust- uh, reading the austrian economists is painful <laughs> they're, <Yeah>. they're terrible writers <laughs> oh, well this has been a great conversation it's it's so good to meet you people can find you at citizen hush on twitter uh or your youtube channel where you're doing your gun videos and 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 podcasts with some really interesting folks uh youtube at citizen hush if folks are interested in what we do here at Exit, you can check us out at patreon.com slash exit underscore org or follow us on Twitter at exit underscore org. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. It was a ton of fun.